Your Pathology. In honor of American fiction in theaters this weekend, what was the last book you read? I'm Katie Rich, and I have been reading a lot of dumb-as-shit, trashy romance novels lately, but luckily, the last book I actually read was Emma Klein's The Guest, which is respectable and pretty good, and, and also an easy read. I liked it. I am Matt Patches, and uh, the last book I read was Holly, the sequel, kind of, to The Outsider, which we may have even discussed a little on the podcast before, because Dave and I are on that king kick um but you know what <laughs> holly's not good and if anyone wants to dig into that at some point i'm happy to uh, say that the outsider is a masterpiece and holly yeah i have to kind of trudge through it <laughs> hey it's me david the seven and twin peaks the final dossier by mark frost for podcast purposes because i'm re-watching it with neil miller is that a book like i know it's like what bound and has pages but is it a book what does Daddy uh, mean to you? It's entirely fiction. It's an entirely fiction story uh-huh. from beginning to end. Uh, I don't know. You didn't say novel. I, I haven't read it. I haven't read it. That's true. Uh, I didn't say novel. So did you, you could was say a picture book. I mean, if this Ooh. is the, if this is the standards we're setting, then the last book I read was <laughs> yeah, the last uh, book I read was, was the Cat uh, Daniel Tiger Five books. Minute Short Stories. Yeah. Oh yeah, mine was a uh, Twenty Four Minutes to Bedtime, the Daniel Kwan oh, yeah. picture book. That's a good one. It's a good one. I've read it uh, every one. night this week. That's a lot. I mean, not to it's read it every night, but like that's a lot of book to read. It's a lot of book. Yeah, reading it every night's been a little exhausting. But wait, David, did you pick a book that wasn't Pete the Cat? Um, I read three Pete the Cat books in the last 24 hours. Feeling pretty proud mm-hmm. about that. All going on my Goodreads. Uh, I also read <laughs> Werner Herzog's Every Man for Himself and God mm-hmm. Against All, because you got to stay on brand. <laughs> that is, yeah, Pete the Cat plus Werner Herzog really is on brand. I am uh, Cat. I read Pete the Cat in Werner Herzog's voice. I am. Yeah, wait, which Pete the Cat? Pete I feel like I read all of them. the sandwich. Uh, that's a terrible Werner Herzog. Uh, we're, we're into Pete Goes to the Beach, Pete's Big Lunch, uh-huh. Pete, uh, uh-huh. Pete Pete's plays Lunch, baseball. Yeah. Pete Goes to the Beach. Yeah. Pete is just yeah. stoned yeah. out of his fucking mind. And that's He's the subtext of, of all, hey, these, all, all these books. Have you watched the no. Pete the Cat cartoon? Pete's got these, yeah, like... With, the, with like Elvis Costello narrating yeah. it. He's got these blinkered hey, eyes, and he's just like, hey, man, I want to put all this shit hey, on my man, sandwich. Yeah, that sandwich. I got to get uh, this banana on my sandwich. <laughs> the can of beans is the big highlight of the Pete sandwich. That uh, Should this all just be in the show? Yeah, yeah sure. so far. I'm not, I'm not big show. Into, this I'm is not the big into Pete. It was a great uh, book that yeah. uh, Ace's Aunt Marie Barty got him about all the world's subway systems, which is essentially mm. like a... It gives you little factoids about every major transit system and then has these really nice illustrations where you, various cultural artifacts are hiding and you have to find them. I mean, obviously, oh. it's uh, replay value is not super high, but it's still a lot of fun. Yeah. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine. I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine, too, eh? Good. Then, well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine, then, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's It's a podcast. Hello, and welcome to Fighting in the War Room. It's episode 456. It is the week of Wednesday, Wednesday, December 20th. That is the day that in 1812, Grimm's Fairy Tales was first published. I never would have guessed that Grimm's Fairy Tales is something that would have a birthday. Like, it didn't just always exist. Yeah, I, mean, Grimm, Grimm, uh, I feel like I'm gonna have though. to teach you something about the Bible. <laughs> it was written at some point by a person. <laughs> yeah. That's not the last temptation of Christ. I'm kind of up to date. Uh, 
it turns out that uh, us talking about punishment long enough yielded us a lot of reviews, it seems. Maybe some emails, too. Yeah. Wow. Uh, we well, yeah, 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 yeah. Actually, I wanted I wanted to start off by throwing a bone to uh, our dear friend Matt Patches, who oh, wow. I uh, often uh, have been known to make fun of for his pronunciations on this podcast, mostly okay. because uh, he pronounces things as if he were an the alien visitor from a summer. foreign world and uh, <laughs> had never heard any sort of Earth speak before. But it's endearing. It's unique. He's a special guy. Uh, but I found myself in a situation uh, at a dinner uh, the other week. And maybe I told you guys the story off, off mic, but I was seated across from a relatively major filmmaker who we do not need to name here. And we were talking about movies we had seen this year. And I began talking about a movie called Pacification. And he said, uh, Pacification. And I said, no, no, I, I, no, it's pacification, please, sir. And then we carried about our business uh, and he looked at me sort of cross-eyed and I, you know, pompously leaned forward and began spouting whatever I thought about that movie. Uh, and then uh, when I went home, just to do my due diligence, I Googled it. And it turns out that for the last 18 months since this movie premiered at Cannes, I have been calling it by the wrong title. This is not a pronunciation <laughs> issue necessarily, so much He's as like, me just wrong. misunderstanding what the actual title of the movie is, because pacification is not a word, and pacification is, and so my brain mm -hmm. defaulted to the one that is real. But uh, the rest of the film-going world seems to have cottoned to the actual name of this movie a long time ago. I mean, it, it helps that I didn't review it. I didn't have to think hard about it in a... Uh, you know, have to write my thoughts out, and, and clearly the spelling would be made obvious to me. Um, you know, that quote about how when people mispronounce things, it just means that they read. Um, and I guess in this case means that they haven't been writing. But man, did I feel stupid, uh, and will never be able to. And it brought to you closer to me. Is what look that filmmaker. <laughs> yeah, I mean, hey, I didn't and want to bring this around. I'll take it. I didn't yeah, want to bring this around to a neg, but it was just a. Uh, a cold splash of water in the face that sometimes mispronunciations, maybe, you know, in most cases, in fact, come from an honest place, um, even if you're just getting the word completely wrong. And I said to this filmmaker, I said, I feel like a real Matt Patches. And he was like, I know exactly what you mean by that. Uh, and then everyone around the table sort of nodded and smiled. Uh, anyway, <laughs> moving on. <laughs> um, me in Greece. Oh, that was a non sequitur. Yeah. I thought you were going to transition into reviews somehow. I am. Mm -hmm. uh, moving, I did a double segue. I said, anyway, I took a deep breath and then segued again. Uh, I was segueing out of my segue to this review from me in Greece, who says, I'd throw myself into traffic for Katie Rich. Um, they say, I look forward to the show every week. Listening to it just always serves as a reminder that I like movies and I should make more time to go see them. The host sensibilities are pretty millennial and hetero. But in the same weirdly comforting way that, like, a Greta Gerwig movie is. Oh my god, speaking of millennial and hetero, has it been discussed on the show yet which host correlates to which Sex in the City girly? Dare I say that fighting in the war room is the more iconic foursome? Writing this at 2am, by the way. <laughs> uh, well... You There's know. a lot to unpack there. Yeah. I can't really deny any of it. Millennial yeah. and hetero like a Greta Gerwig movie. Like, I'm taking that. I'll take that praise, Great. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> I can't argue with that. Um, Dave used to review porn, so I think he has to be the Samantha. That's as far as I've gotten. Oh, all right, cool. I can, also, he's I always around, walking those, around, so. just going, "I'm Dave. I have sex with everyone." 
Mm-hmm. That is, mm-hmm. Yes, that's, I do say that a lot. Mm-hmm. That's Jason Siegel in Forgetting Sarah Marshall's uh, impression. Samantha, um, I'm more of the Che Diaz, I think, of the sure, podcast. Sure, sure. What do you guys think? Is she one of the fat four You're now? using did a she, bold truth teller. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I didn't watch enough of and Just Like That to know anything about Che Diaz beyond the memes. So just I'm just going to trust of weed, you on the... Blows it into... Uh, they are now? non-binary and are very controversial oh. character. I'm not Millennial hetero attitude here. Based on that gap. You know what? I did also did not watch enough uh, and just like that. Really spaced uh, out. Listeners, write in. Assign us our Sex and the City characters. Uh, we will be listening. I think I want, you know, you, you aspire to be the best of Carrie without all the things that make her so obnoxious. But at the end of the day, best case scenario, I'm probably a Miranda. Uh, I was going to I was going to give you Miranda, but wanted to let everybody else weigh in first. <laughs> OK, other reviews. I think we have oh, other right. reviews. We do. Uh, yeah. Fallen leaves for BP. Don't know what BP means. Uh, Best but picture. Le- come okay, on. come on. <laughs> Making a joke. What bears um, me like this, David? <laughs> someone a real bad patch someone is, is locked into award <laughs> season right now and does not have time for much shenanigans. Um, <laughs> LTLFTR. Okay, we are really going fast and loose with the uh, acronyms here. Longtime listener, first time reviewer. I come bearing a confession. I've been a listener since at least David's wedding episode, pretty much never missing an episode. And the one where David got married. Yeah, <laughs> I'm just thinking now of our podcast as friends episodes. And I've always thought it was funny that Dave LeSeven, fighting the War Room podcaster, had such a similar voice to Dave Gonzalez, author and uh, TBC podcaster. <laughs> which I also listen to religiously. <laughs> of course, despite vocal, nominal, and professional similarities, Dave LeSeven and Dave Gonzalez were just two different podcasters. Until last week. At the end of last week's episode, Dave hit us with a change from his usual sign-off. Instead of I'm Dave LeSeven, we got I'm DA7E. DA7E, I think. What a clever way to spell one's name when a number is found in one's last name. But something isn't sitting right. I repeat it again in my head. Day, Dave 7, Dave... Dave with a seven. Dave Gonzalez, how could I have been so blind? I write this sitting at my desk where MCU, the reign of Marvel Studios, sits beside me, sneering. Wow. Dave, I apologize and would like you to know Dave with seven and Dave G were always tied as my two faith potters. Sorry to the rest <laughs> yes. of the gang. Much love. Two spots. Now that seems like a patches gaff. That- <laughs> this person comes That's from... A meme. This is a me move. A world, a, a world in which... Every single person cannot tell the difference between Clark Kent and Superman. Uh, and I respect that. Someone has to make those, those movies work. Um, and finally, we have a review from SM Temps who says, Anime Recommendation. Hello, I've been wanting to recommend a show to you all ever since I heard about its anime adaptation back in 2020. With our recent discussions from the incredible Blue Eye Samurai to the latest Miyazaki Studio Ghibli review, I couldn't help but think of it. The frequent mentions of the name Mahito reminded me of my favorite yet most despised villain with the same name in the absolutely fantastic Jutsu Kaisen by Geji Akutami. This series really stands out by how it blends the best of classic shonen stories and unique power systems that echo shows like Bleach and Hunter times Hunter. I don't know how you say Hunter. Hunter by Hunter. Hunter. It's not Hunter vs. Hunter. Hunter x Hunter. It's just Hunter Hunter. Pacific, 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 pacification. But skips the lengthy training arcs. <laughs> and filler episodes that tend to drag other series down. Yes, I'm looking at you, One Piece. The cast of well-developed, endearing characters mixed with the series' dark tone set against the backdrop of real-world Tokyo and Shibuya in Season 2. Uh, Shibuya is part of Tokyo. I don't know if they... Yeah, anyway. 
deliver an emotional gut punch that few other series can match. The real-world implications extend beyond the anime slash manga itself. The anime's production studio, MAPPA, has recently been in the spotlight for its demanding work conditions. Their schedule is as tight as South Park's with just one week per episode. I mean, David speaking now, knowing what little I know about how anime is made, that sounds psychotic. Uh, despite this, MAPPA has been churning out significant anime shows and movies using a similar timeline over the past few years. There's been concern over whether episodes would stay on schedule. While they did come out on time, they were rushed and ultimately aired unfinished. Kind of like Neon Genesis Evangelion. Uh, with season two is wrapping up on the 28th, bringing the total to 47 episodes and a movie that made more than Space Jam and The Matrix in 2021. I would say now is the perfect time to jump in on a series that I am unable to look away from, despite the emotional emotional roller coaster it puts me through. That series again is Jujutsu Kaisen. For all you people, Katie, you watching any of that? <laughs> you know, I was just going to. This is really a tangent, but uh, Charlie, uh, my older son, is reading a manga right now, like a uh, you know translated into English, obviously, but Shit. it's like it goes back. It's, it's Legend. It's Legend of Zelda. He got it from oh, the school okay, library, okay. but it, it's it's re- it's back to front. You know, in, in like yeah, the way sure. that it would be in Japanese, is which story, is kind of is fascinating. Is the story just like about me, uh, like trying for forty minutes to build a simple motorcycle of some kind, and eventually <laughs> yeah, just giving up? Like, See, we're still in Breath of the Wild. We're not even there. Don't no. even start with that yet. Uh, <laughs> but yes, I feel like we're like a, do- a door is cracking open, and I'm not sure where it's going to take us next. So I'm intrigued. Here's the kingdom that. is discriminatory to people who have problems with uh, spatial relations. And I resent it. <laughs> Luckily, um, when he likes solving best is all the shrine puzzles in Breath of the Wild, so I feel like we're going to be in good shape. Uh, so thank you, SMTEMS, for the recommendation. No, I have not. <laughs> a great reminder that your reviews, as we call them, can also just be little dispatches from your life, recommendations, insights, yeah. uh, postcards of the spoken word variety. You can write them to us on iTunes or whatever the fuck it's called these days at Fighting in the War Room. You can email us at fightinginthewarroom at gmail.com. I think that's the email. I don't know. I never listen. Uh, but, <laughs> correct me if I'm wrong. That is not it. You okay. can email us at fitwr.podcast at gmail.com. Pacification. Did we, have yeah. rev- did we also have emails? Sounded we like have we emails. Did. I said one, maybe two, because one is what appears to be a actual uh, offer from somebody about uh, sponsoring Fighting in the War. Oh, wow. hey. Wow. Hey guys, Patches here with a rare mid-episode splice in. As we just mentioned, we got an email uh, from someone reaching out to us about potentially sponsoring the podcast. When I actually took a look at who it was afterward, it was a, a dear longtime listener and film critic Ryan Silberstein asking if we would be serious about sponsorships and and allow uh, Ryan to to promote Movie John his. Uh, Film collective and and criticism space online. It's also a physical zine, and I say pshaw. We're not going to let Ryan sponsor the podcast uh, for Movie John because it's tis the season to just tell you about Movie John and why it's probably worth picking up in physical form, which is the rare thing that these guys do. If you go over to moviejohn.com and their shop, you could pick up their zine or an annual subscription. The uh, issues are fabulous, and uh, the, they, the the print versions look like old fashions, 1930s, 1940s kind of movie magazines with beautiful illustrations. And I am not going to again allow Ryan to promote or sponsor the podcast for Movie John. I am just going to tell you now 
that it's something if you love film criticism, if you love independent effort, if you love beautiful art magazines, go over to moviejohn.com and look it up. Okay, back to the podcast. Uh, but there is this email that comes from Catherine. Uh, the subject is Boy and the Heron. She says, hello, you don't need to read this on the show, but I guess you can if you want. Please, can you at least remind David that you have international listeners who have not yet had the opportunity to see The Boy and the Heron, even though we do, in fact, care enough about the new Miyazaki to want to go in fresh. Thank you. Yeah, David, Catherine, a, a UK listener, we have what who I will not be able to see it until December 26th. I don't know, but I'm on um, this person's side. Didn't we, like, clearly <laughs> demarcate spoilers? And what? Oh, no, I was talking about... All right, I had a little... I think uh, a little, you had a casual yes. attitude towards spoilers. No, 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 I remember exactly what this listener is reacting to, which is when I said that the... The Venn diagram between people who ah. care enough about the Miyazaki movie to have not seen it at this point, um, but are also listening. Whatever the fuck I said, I know exactly what I said, and I I I can see how that would have sounded uh, flippant <laughs> to people who are living in countries where this movie is not coming out yet. Um, I, for whatever reason, I was sort of under the impression that in this particular case, America was kind of towards the end of its release cycle. Well, yeah, because it's been out in Japan for like six months. Right, but that's just Japan. Um, so I. Probably was wrong about that assumption, and I apologize, uh, but a very, very, very hard movie to spoil, I would say. So hopefully I did not, yeah, warn, and none I of would. us did anything to diminish your experience. Yeah, please report back on what you think of it. All right, onward Good. with the segment about Godzilla Minus One that I won't be in, but I'll be back. <laughs> Is that that was my Godzilla? That was my Godzilla. Was it too yeah, I mean, high pitched? You sound like a chicken. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> we don't know exactly how uh, you're traveling through this temporal realm of the podcast, listener. But Katie Rich may or may not have just disappeared from the podcast to talk to Jack Black. Meanwhile, these three nerds who've gotten to see Godzilla minus one in theaters are going to talk to you. About Godzilla Minus One, it is the newest Godzilla film from Toho. It is the 37th film that uh, has been made in this franchise. I believe it's only the 32nd or 33rd film that's come from Toho, because the other ones are the American Monsterverse. If you know the Monsterverse like the back of your hand, don't worry about it. Uh, this is not has nothing to do with that. This is instead is Takashi Yamazaki's new Godzilla movie. It takes place uh, during the end of and immediately after World War II, where Japan has to once again deal with a Godzilla threat that they are not prepared for, because this is another reboot of the Godzilla franchise. You do not have to have seen any previous Godzilla movies to see this Godzilla movie. Just, I guess, know he used to be a guy in a suit, and now Godzilla is uh, another CGI creation. But that being said, this has been getting some fantastic critical reactions uh, around the globe as it's been opening. I was very much looking forward to my first week in December, my Bayzilla week, where I got to see the Renaissance concert film and Godzilla Minus One uh, in the same weekend. I think I enjoyed them both uh, for exactly what they were, but I want to hear what you guys thought about Godzilla Minus One, because I, unsurprisingly... I'm a Godzilla apologist all over. So it's hard for me to tell 
how much this is really hitting with the the average person. Like, say, Matt Patches. I do want to piggyback off something you said, or uh, lizard back off something you said. Ooh. And, uh, yeah, this Godzilla is fully CG, but I gotta say, quite the gams on this monster really felt mm-hmm. like there is a man in suit. Like, I don't know what they, if it was motion capture or how they animated this, but it really felt like he, the Godzilla monster was kind of lumbering around and there was real footsteps there and they got big, thick lizard legs and i thought the the (laughs) godzilla action here was was pretty spectacular have either of you seen any of uh takashi yamazaki's other films i feel like he is kind of going unsung in the praise for godzilla minus one weirdly as of this movie manifested out of nowhere and especially after the success of of shin godzilla uh, a few years ago which uh oh man his name is david who directed shin godzilla Yeah, yeah, um, I just feel like he got so much praise for the the inversion of the Godzilla franchise there, and and making it about modern day anxiety and society government failure. Like there was just a lot of praise for him directly here with Takashi Yamazaki. Maybe not so much, or maybe I'm just not hearing it. But maybe oh. that's because his his pedigree is not as spectacular. He directed that CG Lupin the Third movie from a few years ago and yeah you a big war movie you asked war, you asked like movies. three minutes ago a question as to whether oh, yeah. or not anyone that he was have seen uh, is is previous movies and uh, i would never i would never do that i would never simply monologue and ignore the words <laughs> out of my mouth. so Thank i think you, you should feel yeah. suitably shamed um i did see lupon the third the first <laughs> Which is such a stupidly little movie. No, it's just like uh, it's it, you know it works in its context. I Fun think movie. In on the joke, the title is absurd. I mean, the movie is an act. It's a it's a sin against God. I mean, it's a Lupin movie that is CGI. Come on. It's uh, slick but, in its own way. It's not in, exactly, but. in spite of that. Uh, it is not bad. Um, it really, it's a, it's an eyesore and a disgrace to Lupin's legacy. But it is actually a pretty fun movie, all things considered. Uh, I have actually seen his film, his 2002 film, Returner. I mean, this guy is prolific. In the year that Lupin the Third, the first came out, 2019, that was one of three movies that he made. And not yeah, only yeah, he's done a uh, lot of franchises. He's done a lot of animation, and he's, he's not, often not the done a visual, lot of movies. He's often the visual like, effects supervisor on his films. Right, right, right. And that it's not like he's getting a lot of global praise. This isn't a no. Japanese auteur necessarily like coming in and doing a Godzilla movie. This is someone who is kind of used to cranking out like anime adaptations or installments. And I just find it fascinating. Like this has really struck a chord globally with with people. It's made almost as much money in America as it has in Japan, I believe, the last time I had checked. Um, and it's it's fascinating to see. Like I wonder. And I was struck by the film. I, I, I got to see this in a theater that it was so loud. It was like an AMC where they had the settings wrong. And it was just off the <laughs> blasting my ears. I had to be an old man and go be like, this is the loudest movie theater I've ever been in. Can you turn it down just a little bit? I know the Godzilla movie is supposed to be loud, but this is too loud. Um, and, and it's just high melodrama. I mean, Dave, we didn't really describe the plot. Uh, and maybe we can get into that a little bit, but... I'm not sure that this is like a Godzilla movie I'm writing home about that. It really kind of blew me away like it has with some other people. I think the action is is totally serviceable and and interesting and the melodrama is functional. Maybe that's what's surprising. Like, oh, a Godzilla movie where I kind of care about the characters. It's like a big war movie. I guess I didn't 
expect yeah. it to be kind of like Dunkirk or something or yeah, like I, taking I think, a lot of pages out of the Oppenheimer or the uh, Nolan playbook but if uh, Dave wants to run through the plot this would be a good time for it but I just want to echo what Patch is saying and, and you know for me this is a movie that works mostly because of the human business um, which sort of the antithesis of why the Gareth Edwards Godzilla is so good um in which the human business famously called anti-human uh anti no i believe the term i believe the term is post-human post-human sorry Uh, not anti-human that would just be godzilla stomping people people yeah the uh you know that was a movie in which the godzilla stuff was was in the the, all the various kaiju stuff was so effective the human stuff less so uh this i mean i could have done probably with less godzilla in this movie um i i know that people have a very special relationship with with godzilla and uh love a lot of the things that people who aren't so infatuated with the series may not uh you know not enjoy so much uh particularly godzilla's look in this movie which does try to sort of split the difference between like cgi which it is i mean it's entirely cgi but also like uh, sort of affect the uh, the look of a man in suit it, it's this weird chimeric sort of hodgepodge between the two and i just thought it looked really dorky um but uh and a lot of the cgi in this movie Those which was made on a budget of like they were yeah i mean a lot of the cgi in this movie is mode. pretty pretty <laughs> wonky um part of the reason you know they they overworked the animators to uh the brink of death to turn this out into 15 million dollar budget uh but uh, yeah i mean i think the human story is very strong um you know it's a broadly nationalistic message it resonates for me in the same way that so many godzilla movies do and i really teed up for dave to set up the plot now and that it's it just shames us this is what these movies are for i mean sh- you know monsters fighting men in suits um you know swatting at each other but it's a shame shaming our nation shaming our systems shaming us all into uh, being better stewards of the earth i mean this is the same shit that i like about uh godzilla in this case uh, the 20 the, the gareth edwards godzilla but in this case it's sort of about you know the foolishness of of dying for one's country rather than living for a better world and that i think is something the movie does well dave how does it set that up well we follow a world war ii japanese kamikaze pilot named shikashima who uh abandons his duty and pretends his plane is malfunctioning only to uh, land and have some very nice uh, seeming mechanics uh, try to fix his plane. Uh, and then there's a Godzilla attack. He, a baby Godzilla chicken, attack. A baby Godzilla attack. This is the dinosaur-like version of Godzilla. Still very large. Uh, still, I, I believe anti-human was the word, because he's just <laughs> fucking, More, fucking yeah, up all the humans. Not post-human quite yet. Full no, not, not yet. Uh, he's we selectively anti-human. I mean, you know, if if people aren't coming after his business, he's not coming after theirs. I mean, I think part. he's pr- pretty entirely anti-human I, because he's not it. pro-human, <laughs> and he only <laughs> not getting get uh, angrier. We're not getting that 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 direction that Godzilla sometimes goes, where Godzilla has morals right. and needs to be a good atomic bomb. I, I will uh, say, in the prologue of this movie, he discriminates a little bit more between who he wants to attack and who he doesn't than he does later on when he's full grown. <laughs> That's true. Uh, speaking of full grown uh, Godzilla, after the United States nuclear test, he gets uh, bigger. But we've been following that same Kamikaze pilot as he returns. To his home, which has been bombed out. His uh, parents are dead, and he sort of sideways uh, adopts. He's too soft to abandon a woman and a young girl who have also been seemingly orphaned uh, from the attacks on Tokyo. 
they make a sort of improvised family and he maybe finds a reason to live uh, running a boat that is cleaning up leftover mines from the war until once again Godzilla comes to uh, uh, I mean fuck with everybody's day but specifically fuck with this guy's day as he's uh, guilt over letting the mechanics die earlier in the movie starts to take over and he begins to convince himself that the only way to take out Godzilla is by sacrificing his life like he refused to at, at the beginning uh, but uh, there's a, a whole bunch of Godzilla shit in here that's the <laughs> like True. That's a full character arc, and Patches, I think you were, you know, trying to say that people maybe like this movie because there's uh, full character arcs that people enjoy watching. And I could say it's been a while since a Toho uh, Godzilla movie has had characters that I've uh, really been invested in. I think I'd have to go back to, like, really early Miki saga and Godzilla versus Biolante, which... Uh, you know, also has some ridiculous Americans in it, uh, but at least that one was, you know, trying to melt Godzilla environmentalism, but also with mysticism in a way that I found interesting. Outside of that, the human plots are usually not the focus of Godzilla movies, uh, especially in the sort of more children-friendly age where he has other shit to do uh, besides destroying Tokyo. But this one, even though it's, once again, another... Godzilla movie uh, where he attacks Tokyo finds a, a reason for it with the themes that David was talking about. Plus uh, an excuse just to not dig into Godzilla as a character. There's a lot not of movies. Yeah, there's a lot of movies that try to explain why Godzilla is doing something. If he's defending, if he's attacking, if we brought this upon ourselves. Uh, this Godzilla, I like to call Angry Cat Godzilla, because it's just like, <laughs> if something's moving and close enough to him, he's going to, you know, push that glass off the table. And that's what makes it so scary and, and tense at times. I mean, I found the human devastation in this movie to be be very real and, and frightening, and seeing people in the streets being swept up in Godzilla's destruction, and seeing the boats out on the water, there's a lot of uh, water-based uh, action in this film, which again, I think plays on uh Takashi Yamazaki's past and and if you've seen his war movies it's it's very similar to that but I just like watching Godzilla tip over a boat that's just full of people that's really scary or watching people run in the streets and then they get swept up I mean I won't spoil anything but like people die in this movie and if it, and it's freaky uh, and you're like on the top of a building what if I have bad dreams I have nightmares of being like on top of skyscrapers when things get like swept across and then and yeah falling, that, that television like crew seen. i mean television crews yeah. famously are uh are are not very lucky in godzilla movies but no. these guys definitely have not seen a godzilla it didn't movie look good before. for them yeah no they um, really put themselves right in the shit and then when, uh, and then when godzilla revs up with his atomic breath i'm like oh fuck that that's a real weapon that's actual devastation and to your point david it just brings it back to like what the Godzilla metaphor was all about and what the monster verse, as much as I like some of those movies, the recent Godzilla Kong stuff, it's just like that is absurd, absurd kaiju big battle bullshit. And this is at least trying to say something and use this metaphor to once again, punch us in the face. You know what like, I love be is an Oppenheimer double feature. <laughs> you know what I, you know what I love uh, in, in a movie is when, you have a big top-down shot of a like an aerial shot of a boat, and you see mm -hmm. the shadow of a massive creature of some kind swimming under it. Love that shit. 
That's love why it. you love Jurassic World. I think they had one of those. In the they movie. do. I mean, I feel like I I may have dino. Uh, Mandela affected a memory of a shot like that being in the second Pirates of the Caribbean movie with the Kraken because I swear every time I went back to rewatch it you know, two it decades ago now um, right it just that shot wasn't there but would have been cool Gore Verbinski if that if that wasn't there and I made it up you missed the major opportunity um, but I think every movie regardless of its subject matter should have one of those shots why is this movie called Godzilla minus one Mm, because the war took okay, uh, this is what Japan I to zero, and then Godzilla takes it to minus oh, one. Oh, okay. I thought it more had more to do with dates, but uh, yes. And this, oh, did I we mean, say that this is? This is I mean, movie. it would have been a great name for a prequel, but this is not. <laughs> yes, I mean, I was. Uh, I'm going mostly off of what the first uh, American trailer uh, translated the titles as, but I believe be yes, clear. it's got great title. I mean, I'm I'm fine with it. It I'm never going to confuse it for any other Godzilla movie. Exactly. Uh, I don't know is, if Godzilla I, I versus the, the Japanese would have been a, uh, been a throwback, <laughs> appropriate throwback, but maybe not a good fitting title here. Uh, I mean, I had a lot of fun with it. Uh, it'll be. It, it seems to continue extending its theatrical run. Uh, news I saw this week is it's going to play in American theaters through the beginning of January, and it also looks like they're going to try re-releasing it in Japan as a black and white version. Mm. Oh, wow. Because, you know, maybe it looks uh, better or different that way. It's I don't know. Rage. I Yeah, uh, so Godzilla's back uh, again, and uh, he has another vague origin story, another first Godzilla movie. This is now our second in a row from Toho that has been New Godzilla movies where he doesn't fight anything. I am perfectly willing if you keep giving directors who have a really strong vision, whether it be uh, scare me or do political satire that is also uh, Evangelion. Uh, both of those flavors are great Godzilla flavors to me. What a what a time to be a Godzilla fan. In trouble trying to sleep. I'm counting sheep but running out. As time ticks by, still I try. No rest for God, stops in my mind. On my own, here we go. We now have to talk. It that was my impression is that, of is that you standing on the rope ropes Bonner. in the That's corner Harley race i'm obsessed with harley race by the way now uh well we really have jumped right into the iron claw which is <laughs> the movie name. by sean durkin about an especially cursed wrestling family in texas in the 80s uh Chris, it's what are you talking about it's a loving like family top five most most cursed wrestling families in texas in the, in the <laughs> it's actually the yeah, late some, 70s Oh, excuse me. Uh, the hair is confusing because there's just so much of it. Yeah. Um, it. As someone who does not know a whole lot about wrestling, uh, I had no idea who these people were. And I learned, uh, seeing the movie, that they were indeed very cursed. After the movie, learned that there was a whole brother who didn't make it into the movie. So they yeah. were even mm -hmm. more cursed. We yeah. can maybe talk about that. I guess we have this listed as a mini segment. I feel like there's a lot to dig into. Well, let's just, let's just go. This I is, would, I would, I, this I is would much XL. rather... Yeah. 
I would much rather podcast. talk about this movie at length than the holdovers about which I have well, nothing to say other well, than it's extremely mid and we well, move on. Yeah, the surprises yeah. await. Uh, Iron Claw, it's about uh, a bunch of brothers who really want their dad to love them. Uh, and so to get him to love them, they uh, transform their bodies into terrifying muscles and then put themselves through ridiculous paces in wrestling, which I think one of the many fascinating aspects of this movie is that it except from the front that wrestling is quote unquote fake, that the the outcome of the matches are less important than the way that these stories are being told in these leagues and make that comprehensible to people who don't necessarily watch wrestling that much. So even if Zac Efron, who's playing Kevin, the oldest of the brothers, is um, going to win his or lose his match is not really as important as what the dad says about it in the locker room afterward. Um, it's about it's a movie about storytelling, which is always a really fascinating topic for a film and storytelling in the wrestling ring, which is something uh, not mm, as many films. That's not about. something I ever would have said about this movie. That's very interesting. It's I'm not look, sure if I, I come, see I, I see that, but I would love you I to come elaborate. in. With the hot no. takes. Um, I like the Iron, Claw a lot. the Iron Claw a lot. I think it has divided people. It divided me in some parts. Um, I think if you've seen Sean Durkin films like The Nest and Martha Marcy May Marlene, which are the only other two features he has made, um, this movie is more emotional and a little bit more hard on its sleeve than either of those, which are pretty chilling and um, clinical in some ways. But I thought that transition really worked for him overall. Big fan of Iron Claw over here. What about yeah, you guys? I, I loved its sentimentality because, you know, the patriarch of this family, the Von Erich family, is Guy Fritz, uh, not his birth name, but, you know, the name that he adopted as part of his persona in the ring. Uh, and he, you know, what happens before the movie begins is that his firstborn son is killed. They really don't mention that this is a character in the movie in some respects, certainly a uh, a presence in the movie, but they don't go into details. But a quick glance at Wikipedia will tell you that their, his oldest son, his firstborn son, died in a freak accident when he was uh, six or seven years old. Um, that had nothing to do with wrestling. He electrocuted yeah. himself and fell face down in a puddle. And yeah, drowned, and drowned oh. in like an inch of snow or something like that. And oh, God. Um, and so that's before yeah. the movie begins. That's that why he does. Yeah. Not to spoil things, appear well, in the film. No, okay, well, that is absolutely, that, absolutely spoiled. That is things. absolutely a spoiler. This is what I was dancing <laughs> around very delicately, and you just charge in. Jesus. That was a spoiler. Um, oh we said God. it's not mentioned at the beginning of the movie. Uh, <laughs> and I'm not uh, saying, but, you think it's okay, you okay, cut okay, that out, but okay. I'm not saying well, anyway, what happens. I'm just saying this film is anyway, haunting. This film is haunting. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> the the we don't really know what you know the, you can read online that Fritz was abused as a child and had reasons for you know inherited the worst from his parents and you know all of these things are cyclical and generationally trickle down but um certainly by the time that we know him he's really been hardened by loss and his whole shtick is wanting to become sort of invincible so that the world can't hurt him or his family and his way of doing that is to raise uh an endless series of sons who are or the greatest uh, wrestlers in all of Texas and hopefully beyond that in the world. Uh, and his whole and thing is- And who are deeply like, harmed by his decision to do all of this. Yes, but I mean, that his, his mantra sort of goes back to, you can't show any weakness. You can't be vulnerable and you certainly can't cry, uh, which is something that people outwardly state at several sort of heartbreaking, several heartbreaking junctures in the movie. And the degree to which this movie sort of, it has the tension that's at the heart of Durkin's previous films. Um, and some of that iciness, but the degree to which that iciness cracks uh, as the tragedies begin to pile up, uh, particularly in the last 15 minutes, I think is such, I mean, fuck you might be too hostile, uh, but it, it's such an effective rebuke against <coughs> Fritz as a character um, in allowing 
some members of his family. Uh, that sort of catharsis, the beauty of being emotionally open, um, of being able to pass that down to future generations. Um, I mean, it's why it, it, the, the sentimentality feels very pointed and deliberate and not just done to wring tears, although it is very effective at doing that. Um, but it, it really feels like it has a rhetorical purpose. And uh, I found it obliteratingly sad <laughs> and moving for that reason, particularly Zac Efron, who is given what is far and away the best performance of his career, uh, although I have much respect for his work in The Beach Bum. Um, but he is not a high school so, musical guy. Is that what you're saying? Not really, but he's so, uh, so, so powerful here. And in the last scenes of this movie, he's given a few lines that have just like a metric ton of weight to them. And I think he he really pulls them off beautifully. It's been building up. He has the whole a Stallone movie. thing going in this movie, and I say that in a sure. good way. Where like Stallone can be cracked, but more childlike. I mean, because all these kids are all these boys are sort of eternal children in a way. I mean, they're they're all sort of stuck yeah. adolescence as big and rippling as they are. The cast is so good. Yeah. I mean, you have Harris Dickinson as one of his brothers. Uh, Jeremy Allen White is one of his brothers. A guy named Stanley Simons, who I, I don't, most I'm people have probably never seen before. He's, uh, he's excellent in this movie. It's <laughs> just really depressing. But, yeah. And more a tyranny in this movie. More tyranny just... as the mom. Uh, but yeah. not, I mean, the role is not, she's not just like, it's not Anne Hathaway in Darkwater. Like, there is, no. uh, there is uh, some meat on that well, bone. Well, she has her own thing. She likes to yeah. paint. She wishes well, she, she it's just like a she gets a talk survival mechanism. And, you know, you see one of the first things she says in the movie, you know, when you jump forward to what is the movie's contemporary setting, is, you know, Zac Efron comes to her complaining that the father is not sort of being, he's being mean to uh, Stanley Simon's character, the youngest of the brothers, who is not at all built for wrestling. Clearly, he wants to play guitar in his band and just wants to be you know, yeah, more of an artist type. Mean. Yeah, and, uh, and he brings that complaint to his mother. And his mother is like, talk to your brothers. That's what they're there for. And like, mm-hmm. I think she's already sort of in a survival mode in a way, and which is a great disservice to her kids. And it's, uh, I think more Tierney makes a bit of a meal in a good way of, of how she got to that point. Definitely. That line has haunted me ever since I saw this movie, for sure. Dave, where do you fall on the Iron Claw? Mm. Where do you suplex on the Iron Claw? Mm-hmm. I think the Iron Claw needed to pick a direction. I, I, uh, I, Zach, I, F- I, I, I knew this about. I just felt that this movie was <laughs> it wasn't in like interior enough for you or something. Zac Efron's doing a great job anchoring it, but everything else sort of feels like pieces moving around him. And maybe it's because I actually like was kind of aware of the Von Erich story going forward. But I, it's always been. Uh, nestled in the greater uh, promotional shifts that were happening in the wrestling situation at the time, so the move from regional to national and what eventually would give us their you know current wrestling. And even though it does have like a little bit of how they're supposed to tell a story and how you know they work it out and they you know have some great two on two and three on three matches where we get to see those things sort of uh, working, uh, it. Hard pivots into the tragedy of the family in a way that it just becomes tragedy after tragedy after tragedy. It's the I virgin suicides for boys. I mean, it's, yeah, uh... I can see why. I can see why I didn't involve uh, Chris Von Erich, the brother that uh, also uh, shot himself. Uh, that was the third uh, child to die, not counting the six-year-old. 
who didn't make um, it into the movie. They just cut him out entirely. They just cut him out entirely. Um, I read in an interview that Sean Durkin said it just would have uh, been too much tragedy to sort of like line up. Yeah, which I, I think is fine. I agree. Uh, but uh, the uh, overall outcome of this movie, because Zac Efron is the only one as our point of view character to sort of have like a revelation until uh, the mom does sort of at the very end, uh, made me feel like this is a movie with a very obviously bad father that uh, sort of comes back around at the end and it's like, oh yeah, it was the dad. And I was like, dude, you just began and end in the exact... I, I never had a doubt that Fritz was the villain in this situation. I don't think the movie oh. is deep. I don't find the movie oh. deep, but I find it like skimming across a, 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 a very atmospheric, very alive lake i guess uh like mm. the wrestling is really well constructed and the wrestling yeah there's this fight early on in the movie maybe it might be an hour in i shouldn't say it's early on but like zach efron getting his stab at a championship and the fight which while you know orchestrated in the pro wrestling kind of way maybe is like i he gets thrown out of the ring oh yeah uh, and slammed on the floor by harley looks, race Harley Race, looks, yeah, that guy, that enormous it looks guy. Really painful, like the way that they're shooting all this, and you know, props to I guess the wrestler way back in the day for kind of setting this up. Maybe it's familiar, but I, I do think Dirk is taking shooting pro wrestling to kind of a different uh, level in this movie. That's not it's not like the Creed boxing, you know, cinematography or something where it's like we're intense, we're in the ring, or, and it's all sweaty. Uh, it's just like it is so dramatic the way Durkin can handle it and and do his style of filmmaking. I I love the nest. I love all that chilly, like seventies kind of throwback wide shots and 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 stillness. And he did that in Martha, Marcy May Marlene back in the day. And I think he brings a lot of it here. The I thought. Um, correct me if I'm mispronouncing this name, Matthias. Ardley, who did Son of Saul, the, I thought the cinematography in this movie was amazing. All the like sepia tone browns and just like I found the atmosphere to be really, I don't know, it was enveloping and 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 for as surface level maybe as the movie as the as the drama was. We know there's a bad dad and we know they're being like whiplash. Uh, I just I really I really there. object to that reading. Uh, not like moral but at surface grounds. level. Yeah, I mean, but I really want to speak to what what Dave said, which is like. Sure. He's talking about the movie as if it's a mystery as to what the source of the of the poison in this family is, when that's not at all what the movie's doing. And the movie is about the process of transference. It's about the generational you know, transference of, of how they're parenting from one generation to the next. And the journey of the movie is not the discovery of, of where this evil is coming from, but in Kevin Von Eri, or Zac Efron's character, uh, his recognition of that. Uh, you know, and the loss that every every but the know, movie's not really about that transference of parents because we don't see that many parents. I mean, you're I, the, the coda of the film pays that off and is really fulfilling. Uh, well, but it's like, this that's movie, the, uh, crystallized at the end, but it's all about his sort of they self took away understanding. Carrie, what Carrie's his, real life children that aren't in the story at all. Yeah, no, but it's, it's still about like what anything. his his self recognition of strength, what it means to be strong. I mean, that is best expressed to me, uh, and I come at this as a father who is trying to unlearn oh, certain ways of parenting, less violent than the ones we see in this movie, but definitely of a similar generation. Um, and he is able to express over the course of the movie, find a, a different understanding of what it means to be strong. 
Um, and that is a journey that we see him on from the moment we see him get out of bed in the beginning and, and run himself ragged in the morning when everyone else is still asleep and then embark on this relationship with Lily James's character when he when they're you know creating a family and and he's trying to navigate well even before that I, I totally is. agree with you they're actually and i'll take my own comment back which i think there is a lot of parenting in the movie and zach efron is the one to to grapple with it because he ends up parenting so many of his brothers that he's looking out for his mm-hmm. sick Absolutely. brother and trying to get him to, to help and like yelling at his dad to like help there's so many scenes and it's frustrating in the in a dramatic way where like dad can you help mom can you do something no you guys settle this. You brothers do this. You have to parent here, and there is no parenting for you. So good luck. Uh, and and it's so frustrating. And and you have to beat that drum over and over and over throughout the way. Yeah, I mean, my know, only the movie the way it does, and it's and it's it's hard to watch, but it's I'm my only you. bone it's to pick is is that I do feel like Holt McElhaney's character, Fritz, the father, is static to a degree. That I think, uh, and maybe this dovetails with what Dave was saying, uh, sort of makes it unrealistic for me. I mean, I understand that a certain mindset, you know, this character's mindset in particular, can be very pathological and and unyielding, uh, and there isn't a lot of wiggle room in how he's feeling. But I needed one scene where he displayed a sort of recognizably human emotion. Um, mm-hmm. Like I had like at least a hint of warmth. I kept wanting, there's a scene when all the boys help their youngest brother sneak out to play a gig at a college, uh, despite their parents' wishes and nothing comes out. They don't get caught or anything um, early in the movie. And I just kept, I mean, whatever, I'm just being fanciful and inventing things now, but like, I really wanted the dad to like, see them come home and maybe just a moment of like, boys will be boys. And he's proud of his sons. Like, let it go. Just like one moment of him being lenient, I feel. I and like the having whole the point capacity. of the movie, the whole point of the movie is that he's unyielding. Like he's created a cult around of himself. Of like course. go back to Martha Marcy May Marlene. So the whole point is that he's the mm. unmovable object that they are kind of rotating around. And you're really watching Zach Afron's character in particular kind of bend himself into shape. You know, his dad decides his younger brother's gonna like be the champion and he just kind of silently acquiesces to it they kind of he has to be the the center even, that doesn't even move. the most and, and he is, of those and he people is, can't you can't keep that persona up you know but he 24 is 7 365 what's interesting about his character is that he does have warmth toward the boys but it's Only always on laced terms. with I, I, you know, you're not my favorite son anymore. You're the best. Or like, I've decided you're going to be the champion now and I don't love you as much anymore, which he's just very direct about them. That's the saddest thing. So even when he's giving love, he's just just, knocking the other kids down in competitive way. And it's, I I just always found it more heartbreaking when, and maybe this is a historical and this just doesn't jive with who this guy really was. But I, I think when someone shows you, maybe even you know falsely the the capacity to have that sort of emotional bandwidth it's more heartbreaking when they don't show it to you more often um it's like you know and and i think that like every scene uh, this father is so static that it it, i just wanted i just felt like the movie could have been slightly richer and maybe to people like dave not have felt like it was just you know kicking its tires if there was, if, if that character was just like a tiny bit less rigid in his presentation, not in, you know, his ethos, not in the way that he, 
you know, hmm, raised his too much children, of a heel. Anyway, he is definitely. Mm, I, I, I mean, put it in wrestling terms. <laughs> the movie, the movie montages over a lot of developments that I would have liked to see the boys deal with with their father. At some point, he transfers the day to day operations of the business running mm. over to Kevin. We don't learn about that until way after it's been done. Uh, there's illusions that he had, you know, a scene with uh, Jeremy Allen White's character before that character like exits the movie. But we're just so focused on when Kevin comes to light about things and Kevin isn't the smartest of uh, the Von X. So I feel like there's a middle section of this movie that is like the montage of a wrestling sports movie that this movie could have been. Uh, but in that happening, we sort of lose some of the connected tissue that I would have liked yeah. about drilling down on why specifically these characters. Also, like, David, even if we didn't see a moment when he was, uh, when the father, you know, sort of broke and gave some grace to his children, I kind of wanted a moment where one of the kids attempted to, you know, stand up to him in a real way and how he would react to that, whether he would talk them down and belittle them, whether he would be like, let's go play some football so he could like tackle his children roughly. Like I wanted to step in that direction because at some point he becomes a dude on a couch that's making threats. And I'm like, you're all huge. Why are you listening to what this fucktard has to dad. say? Yeah, it's so they're they're even they're It's so they're, obvious. That, that mo those moments start disappearing once dad. his kids start dying. What? Yeah, I mean, if well, I was the last brother Dave, alive, maybe I'd hit the risk my dad. Of, well, at the risk of... Uh, uh, there is some spoiling something that happens late in the movie. Uh, there, there is a scene that I think flies in the face of what you're talking about, and it's uh, kind of hard to miss. Uh, it may be a little bit too late for your well, liking. I mean, <laughs> but... that it's, one, one, it's a little bit too late and a little bit one-sided with how it's acted, and two, it's followed up by a really weird fantasy scene. No, that I love. I mean, I love the fantasy scene. I mean, I that's didn't the, love, that goes like... back to what I was talking about with the sentimentality. I would like to complain about the very ending of the movie, but like not to, like it, it, it sounds very nitpicky and like I don't have to get into it too much. I like there are notes toward the end where it kind of takes all the things that have been subtext and makes them like very, very clear text. But I didn't feel like that needed. I Sean Durkin is so good at subtext. There's so much being told and like the glances between them, who's sitting where in the locker room, like how they're positioning themselves in the ring that like when it gets really big at the end of it, I don't think like, it's an emotional impact, but I think kind of at some I of the expense the reason, of what came before it. I think the reason you do that is because this movie is so hard to watch. It's so awful that you have to give people is. catharsis. You, you have to give a little and, catharsis, and you have to let like otherwise brothers you're hug left each with, other and have. And a if good you time. put in all this shit about like the intricacies of how the business was passed down and and what's happening between he and uh, Jeremy Allen White's character, I mean, you get into the territory of one of the worst movies of the 21st century, Foxcatcher. And wow, you, I, I knew uh, it. Uh, and then, we could not get out know, of it. Things are, are going to get that sort of you know moribund and, and soggy. Uh, but I, I also think that subtlety is not a virtue in all respects in a movie like this. Um, and I do think this is a much better film for some of those final lines that maybe are the ones Katie's taking issue with than it would be without them. I think that there is just so much uh, beauty and recognition and... and and hope for the future that is crammed into those lines as, uh, you know, much as the movie is dropping them onto you from the top rope. You know, I, I think it's really effective and beautifully done. I like this movie really stuck with me. And uh, I think it, it's up there with like all of us strangers as like the two nuclear grade tearjerkers of the year. 
Oh, and All of Us Strangers, another one that just like, I mean, no, Iron Claw was more emotional for me. All of Us Strangers left me real cold. Um, but really? maybe we'll that's a conversation we'll we'll save for next year. Yeah, mm. let's save that one. Have you seen a doctor? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen the good doctor? Iron Claw, it's in theaters this weekend. If you want to see what we're talking about, go check it out. It's worth seeing, I would say. Yeah, yeah maybe. Hot take. That is that's the sound my, of Paul uh, Giamatti screaming. A, yes, that's an old <laughs> English teacher in the 70s. Oh, no, English, no, history teacher. Uh, we're talking classics. about the holdovers. Classics. I just want to say is every year, every year there is there is usually one, hopefully only one movie that I see as part of the, the you know, in the fall <laughs> corridor and award season that I think is like fine. Uh, and then by virtue of what I judge to be the uh, undeserved praise that gets thrown its way. I have no choice but to make my mortal enemy on this earth. And, we have no uh, choice but to for you? Is, is this the no, Coda? No, I mean, Coda was too year? benign for me to ever really get that up in arms about it. And, like, most people in our world were pretty mid on Coda to begin with. This the green book of this year, are you? I mean, that no, comes I think, all I think sorts David's of... going for something more, like... Uh, primal. Like, <laughs> yeah, like, it's something that, like... Is not objectionable like Green Book, but like because yeah, David yeah, yeah. Uh, has to be a contrarian and it gets his a, friends. It's just it's a movie that has always struck me, and I was a movie I was really looking forward to because the setting speaks to me. Paul Giamatti, one of our greatest living actors. We're talking about the Alexander, holdovers. Did we say yeah, that? Yeah, Alexander yeah. Payne. David, David, David hijacked this to complain about the holdovers. I just found this movie <laughs> we love aggressively, this movie, so let's get aggressively it. mid, and oh, no. there's Stop. nothing worse than and lonelier. Actually, no, my real enemy this season is Maestro, which is a worse, I think, a worse movie than this. But the uh, this this movie is aggressively made and it seems to be capturing the hearts of people far and wide, young and old. Uh, I think it's one of Paul Giamatti's least interesting performances. Um, it's oh a hat on a hat. I don't know. I just like I really God. think it's a pale shadow. David of just loves Giamatti in Amazing Spider-Man 2. That rhino performance. Very subtle and no hats on hats. Okay, I was thinking, I'm turning this over to Katie now. I, I was thinking based on what you were saying when we started the segment that you were with me. But apparently I was way off the bat. Way off the uh, no, I love the holdovers. Uh, I think. Maybe there's go. this thing that happens where a movie can be small, uh, but every single scene hits and they add on top of each other to create something uh, surprisingly I mean, impactful. That and that's happen. not mid. That is here. just a, a really good movie. Yeah, none it of is that very- in Dave, David's tirade did I hear of what he didn't really like about it. But let I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, Katie. We'll have to circle we, back. We try, we try Please unlike continue when you, being on the when right you side of the When you spoil the end of the Iron Claw in the first 20 seconds of our segment, I try <laughs> to have lead with the specifics. <laughs> you start generally uh, and then you... You dig in. The holdovers oh, is set at a New England boarding school where it is Christmas and there are some kids who have to stay because it's the 70s and they can't like, I don't know. I don't know why it's in the 70s. They'd have to stay there more likely. Uh, and there is a professor or a teacher, I guess, because it's high school played by Paul Giamatti named Paul Hunnam, who uh, hates everybody and everybody seems to ha- hate him. He calls his students snarling Visigoths, which is what I call my cats now every day. Um, <laughs> and he is stuck staying over with the kids who uh, don't have anywhere to go. 
one of those kids is named Angus Tully, uh, and he his mom, I guess, is remarried and is off on her honeymoon and can't be bothered to hang out with him. Not great parenting in this movie and in Iron Claw. Uh, and eventually it becomes just the two of them, and they are joined by a woman who is the cook for the cafeteria, played by Dave Boy and Joey Randolph, who is uh, running away with every single Best Supporting Actress award in the early Oscar season. Maybe that's something where you may be inclined to raise an eyebrow, David, because she is great in this no, movie. No, she's so but good. Not, she's like, by far so the best part so of the movie. That she's going to like run off with the whole season anyway. She, and and um, like also, like I feel like, and I famously eat my words every year, uh, one Oscar prediction or another, but I feel like... She, she seems unstoppable. Like what? Well, I think could she's happen? probably gonna win. Uh, yeah. Don't say what could happen because then something happens. Uh, then, a pan- <laughs> then a pandemic happens. Um, so anyway, they form an unlikely uh, trio of friendship, and everyone has Wrong a problem fan. that is solved or not solved over the course of their time in the snowy New England school. And as I said before, every scene is perfect, and then another perfect scene comes after that. And yeah, by the end of it, um, you are completely sold. I love this movie so much; it just hit on every level for me. They play Cat Stevens, The Wind. And I was they do do that back. Uh, yeah, yeah. great movie is banger like a soundtrack. Early Cat Stevens at, album just vomiting all over you. That's good. Some people minutes. call those uh, Hal Ashby vibes, which yeah. uh, I mean, the Hal, Ashby, the Hal Ashby vibes are uh, extremely strong with this one. I would I mean, call this, them this immaculate. Movie, Alexander Payne's obviously. Is it, would you call it pastiche? I guess is the question. Do you think it's an exercise? I mean, sounds like David does. Uh, but Katie, do you think it's a successful exercise in replicating old-fashioned filmmaking, or is it taking lessons and taking looks and making something new to 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 be different than everything else that we see in a in a given year? Is it? Moving I mean, in it's a certainly mode? different from everything yeah. else we see in a different in a given year because I think is it's, this the you know, it's supposed to look of- like. <laughs> Of Hal Ashby movies, I guess. No, because I think it has a real soul to it that's separate from it trying to imitate a Hal Ashby movie. Like, I think it's very easy for this to tip over into something that feels pastiche and kind of airless. But I think the performances and the quality of the script written by a guy who'd never written a feature film before um, make it feel like it just isn't. How Ashby movie from that period. Like, it's it's a successful, successful experiment because it has the goods. I I just, I mean, I I think the script works. I think that's what separates it from pastiche or something and maybe david will grumble about this but like i like the characters right i like angus and i think that the bond between the teacher and student is is real that stuff gets under my skin i love a teacher movie i love a christmas movie there's a christmas movie Mm -hmm. there's a lot of christmas sad christmas vibes i like lonely christmas i like chilly movies i like drinking punch at parties and this movie just delivers all of my sad christmas dreams and i i do think all of the characters just like quietly talking in an empty school is like a, a a vibe i'm down with it feels like sitting at home drinking bourbon and listening to a record but it's a movie great, it's a great and, vibe uh, it's a great, are strong. great vibe and but you don't like the character you don't like angus who is at the center of the I, movie. it's not really I, giamatti's thing it's really about this well my this problem starts with mm. giamatti which is a sentence a, a sentence that i never thought i'd say i mean i think he's 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 great in this movie in a way i think the character is just a hat on a hat on a hat on a hat i mean you have the the disease where you smell like fish, you have the glass eye, you have what is nine other things that make him such a... I think he has literally two things. He has a lazy eye and he smells weird. No, there was another thing. Uh, And, right, he's got implied hemorrhoids. I'm just looking back at my review now. 
Um, he's, he's a functional <laughs> alcoholic. There's just a yeah. bullet point list of all his things. Yeah. Um, it's just, it's, it's all a, a bunch of affectation for me that never really coalesces into someone that feels like a real human being. I really, it's very rare. And I, you know, I say this is a toxically annoying person, at least in the, when I, when I'm doing my podcasting, uh, but it's very rare that I get annoyed by a movie, like bored, exasperated, angry at shore. But I deeply annoyed at this character who I just never found clever, interesting enough to, to justify it, his petulant, He's a teenager. That is what a teenager is. Well, yes, he's a dumb, dumbass Um, teenager. And and the affectation of Giamatti feels like his like the kid's perspective on teachers. I feel like I have memories of teachers. Well, the movie I know you for one or two traits, not who you are. That would be fair if the movie were presented as at all being through the POV. Yeah, I think that's a weird take, honestly. Um, Wow, Patch is no. taking up to the woodshed. Uh, but but the, what do you mean no. that that this is not? There's no amount of memory coming from pain or like. I don't no, think it's from the kid's perspective the in any way. No, I'm the... saying I'm saying the character gets away with that affectation being this kind of caricature of a certain teacher because I mean I'll it allow it just so far the nostalgia as... build of the yes, movie the nostalgia about remembering from, school. You know, from the moment we see the MPAA title card, it's, you know, styled the way that it would be in the 70s, start of this movie, before we even get to the opening credits. I mean, nostalgia is already uh, this movie's stock and trade, and it leans into that. I mean, as we said several times, the vibes are immaculate. There's no doubt about that. I mean, it really creates the feeling of being in a boarding school campus or a prep school campus uh, in the 70s during a snowstorm. I mean, that's great. I love the scenes that take place in downtown Boston. I fucking loathed a scene that follows uh, the sequence where they go to downtown Boston. I don't want to spoil it like Patches might, but when they... Um, is this uh, is my new thing. <laughs> I pivoted. Now that you have um, mispronounced, I need to get slammed Yeah, for we spoilers? all have to trade. We all have to trade our, our trades. Me? But yeah, there's, you are claiming I spoil? There's okay. a scene where they go into Boston, they go to see a movie, and the scene that I'm talking about is immediately after that, um, which it just trades on... A trope that we have seen a number of times in movies that I find like so lazy and uninteresting and there's just no uh, emotional payoff for me in that um, and the movie kind of ends on a whimper as a direct result but uh, Dave, how do you pronounce her? Davine? Davine, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah Dave Vine, I, not only do I think that her performance is runs away with this movie but uh, her character I also think is most beautifully rendered those things go hand in hand but there are revelations about her character in every act of this movie that I found really affecting um, and believable and uh, the way that they resolve in the third act when she visits her sister, I just, I found really, really beautiful. Um, yeah, and that hit me really in a way beautiful. that I wish that the rest of them Speaking of movie did. Um, and the cookies that they sent nine, us weren't uh, even that good. I don't know. <laughs> the cookies were not that good. I was disappointed in the cookies. I did. Okay. Is is this uh, hetero white people shit as our uh, reviewer in the beginning labeled us? They didn't no, call us uh, white. You, hetero millennial okay, shit. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what do you think uh, of the holdovers? I see why david was annoyed but ultimately disagree because this is why we have three act structure and character acts everybody begins with a very easy assumption you can make about who that character is 
and then only by talking to each other do we get to unfold them into actual characters. That pattern is a little uh, didactic throughout the movie, though. I mean, it's like you learn to think about a character, and then they're like, wah not so fast. What did you consider that they also have a second trait? And you're like, what? People yes, like people. Oh, my trait. God. Uh, <laughs> the, how shocking to have real people on screen it's played just, by actors. It, it, it's, yeah, it's, but that, it's a little... Yeah, in real uh, life, you just know everything about everyone all at once. No, I, I think there's a lot of mm, mm. there's a lot of times where it could have turned its grace notes into something more sappy that I would have then would have been immediately uh, David on your side. But these people ultimately need to uh, see each other as people and then uh, not necessarily find solutions in each other. They need to find solutions on their own because they just read as deeply real people to me. But overall, the most important thing, I watched this pretty close to uh, May, December. This is how you uh, uh, do film uh, grain on digital movies. Not oh, that wow. one. Wow. I mean, I don't know if I can join you on that tape. Of all the elements to pick on, to choose this movie over May, December 4, I suppose it's the least offensive. But to throw no shade at May, December in the way that it looks, I have yet to watch the movie on Netflix. The holdovers looks beautiful. I mean, it's. It's really beautiful. What? What? I mean, I know that they also tried to shoot uh, with, so it was actually snowing when it's snowing in the movie as much as possible. I don't know how much that has to do with anything, but if you're going to shoot digitally and try to make it look like it was shot on film around the 1970s, this does much better uh, than uh, either what May December is doing or what James Cameron's undoing in his 4K. uh, Oh my God. Have you seen the true lies 4K transfer? Oh my, it looks like AI. I I need to watch the whole thing. We're going to talk about this in the new year because I have a link for it and I want to watch it and see if it's as bad as those screenshots make it look. Yeah. I I don't, I don't want to stoop to, uh, (laughs) Jesus. I mean, it, oh, the holdover is ultimately I enjoyed myself uh, while I was watching it. I liked the ending. Is it like this huge monumental shoot for the moon thing that's going to make me call it like the best one of the best films of the year? Probably not, but that should yeah. check just back because in it's... 2024 when we do our top well, 10 episodes. I mean, <laughs> yes, Dave, is, Dave is speaking uh, truth there in that it, you know, this is the kind of movie that is really weaponized by Oscar season. I recognize that this is the kind of movie that doesn't really get made these days without the machinery of Oscar season. I think it's made season. because um, Oscar season exists. Like, you don't get to Exactly, that's like what I'm saying. But uh, it season. is unfortunate that it has that pressure behind it because um, uh, people are not reacting in a way that I find normal when, <laughs> to this movie. But when, that's just me. When we talk about... When we talk about dramas for adults, this yeah. like weird movie that supposedly doesn't get made. This yeah, is what I, 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 this is, from but the this is, season. We're praising this movie on its own terms. I no, don't care about this the Oscars. Is, I like this movie. This is classic. If we still made drama for adults, this movie would not be getting nearly the same kind of Why? reaction. Why? I mean, you because can't there would be say one that. Of these it's every not being made in that. It's not being made in that environment. You cannot say that. I can. It's a touch more okay, cynical than I would like it, it to be, but I can and did. How did they do the walleye? Does anybody know? Nobody no knows. one knows, and they won't talk about it. We have tried to write a story about it, and they won't talk to us. You sons of bitches! I Why? What, I, what's wait, the secret? I, what's uh, the secret? Fucking AI technology you know. use, and now you're embarrassed about it's something weird in CGI that doesn't fit with the vintage vibe of the movie, is my guess. But right. I don't know. The holdovers. Anyway. I, I I I I enjoyed myself. I, I, if I Paul Giamatti it. wins it's an so Oscar good. for this. 
And that's what you it takes to get Paul Giamatti as Oscar. You will be happy I, that Paul Giamatti will, has an Oscar. I will be very happy that my, that my old Sideways buddy Paul makeup Oscar. This is the like one award season movie that uh, Java wanted to watch with me for whatever reason. Good job, Java. Um, I especially, I, I don't know why. And if he beats, I mean, which he would have to to win the Oscar, if he beats Bradley Cooper, I will be doubly happy. So there's a silver lining in every cloud. Oh, man. Yeah. Come back next year so we can talk about Maestro slash our favorite movies. You know what? Come back next year. Those two year, might this, be very separate topics. This year's podcast is over. <laughs> Regrets collect like old friends here to relive your darkest moments. That does it for this week's and this year's Fighting in the War Rooms. Guys, we saw each other in person this year. That already makes 2023 pretty we good, right? We drank from fish bowls. We sure did. At least you and I did. I we don't did. remember if David did. I didn't get COVID, even it. though I just was drinking whatever beers were left on the table towards the end of the night. It was great. And that's how you know we Post don't have pandemic. to do uh, pandemic check-ins anymore. That's This is also the year that ended. Uh, we will be back next year, as we said, to uh, talk about Maestro, to do our top tens at some point. Uh, David might even make his video at some point before that happens. Mm. We never know. Oh, wow. Um, all out culture and we hope everybody has a great holiday in the meantime we're going to take a little bit of time and be back in january in the meantime uh tell the people who you are i'm matt patches i'm on letterbox and blue sky mr patches and we have a website fighting in the worm.com where you should go back and listen to every single top 10 episode we've ever done just to know where exactly we're coming from you know we didn't get to talk about aquaman 2 on this episode, which is about to come out. Well, that's it why we're delaying screened... our top 10 so that you can <laughs> yeah. put it on your top 10. Yeah, well, right? well, the original was on my uh, oh, top I 10 remember. of that year. Um, <laughs> and yeah, no one's seen it except for David, who's told me it was incredible. So I'm very excited to see Aquaman <laughs> 2 The Lost Kingdom. Uh, Someone is joking. Else this. Uh, Someone yes, is making uh, a little the joke. Go, go back into the, the history books. Uh, I'm David Ehrlich. I have, uh, at the time of this recording, regrettably yet to see Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom, and I'm especially sad about that because if I had seen it, I would be able to write about it right now instead of having to mainline Red Bull and stay up half tomorrow night cranking out my review for the embargo on Thursday. Uh, love that. Um, a movie that even Jason Momoa has like repeatedly basically said, like, <laughs> it's, it's gonna bomb, I'm not even like paying attention. Um, Always a great time going into it. Anyway, you can find me on X at David Ehrlich, on Harley Race's social media at <laughs> David Ehrlich, um, on uh, Letterboxd at David Ehrlich, at Blue Sky at presumably David Ehrlich. Uh, you, more importantly, you can find all of us together on iTunes at Fighting in the War Room. Leave us a, on whatever it's called. I, I'm saying, I, why am I suddenly getting a bee in my bonnet about this after calling it iTunes for years? I don't know. I recognize on some level that's not what the program's called anymore, but you know what I'm talking about. This program is still called Fighting in the War Room, however. And you that's right. can find us there on that program and leave us a review. Or you can also email us at fitwr.podcast at gmail.com. I'm Dave Gonzalez. I spelled my first name DA70. Why? As one reviewer pointed out, if you want to find me on a social media app, but if you want to know what I'm there, search for DA7E. It'll either be that or Grumpy DA7E. My agent said I shouldn't put it on the book, and I listened to her. She's very smart. So that's why that happened. Uh, email us, fitwr.podcast at gmail.com. 
Uh, and I'm Katie Rich. You can find me at Vanity Fair on the Little Golden Men podcast, where we talked in much more detail about all of the awards chances of the holdovers and the Iron Claw. And actually, we talked about Godzilla Minus One on this week's episode. So you can hear us talk Ooh. about that. Nobody had seen it, but we got a really good listener question about the supporting actress <laughs> performance, um, which apparently is very good. Uh, you can find me. Is it the little girl? Is it the child actress? It's a neighbor. The woman who's the neighbor. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. The woman's the neighbor is pretty good. Um, you can find me on Twitter and blue sky and letterbox, which I'm still using a lot more and, uh, logging the Martin Scorsese movies. I'm watching to prepare for screen drafts in January at Katie rich, K A T E Y R I C H. We are on Twitter and blue sky. Maybe we should have a letterbox. Do I say this every week? Uh, we're at FITWR, where you can uh, share us your holdovers hot takes, or you can answer this week's lightning round question, which was. In honor of American fiction in theaters this weekend, what was the last book you read? Thanks for listening, and we'll be back talking to you in 2024. Happy New Year, everybody. Now I'm done. I'm done. We're done.